There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Jim Lenhart, welcome back to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thanks, Brad. Jim, we're, this is your second time on the show. And also we've got Michael Wicks joining us today as well. Good morning, Brad. <laughs> and, and also, not, not, not last but not least, let's not forget about the, the man of the moment, Jeremy Brown, the most ridiculously good-looking man in Monica. Mate, that, that may be true. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Brad? I'm very well. I'm a little bit stressed because I couldn't get this silly microphone to work for somehow it's working now. And I don't know. It's the classic IT solution. Turn it off, turn it on again, pull a cable out, put it back in and it's working now. But I'm actually pretty excited about this conversation with Jim because with Jim, I think was episode number two or number three. I think number two. And, that, and I actually listened to it this morning and it's interesting just. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we had absolutely no idea what we were doing and uh, we still don't, but Jim was an amazing guest and we touched on, a, in my mind, some key areas that blew our minds uh, and I was actually hoping to delve into a bit more detail. But for people who might not be familiar with Jim and might not have listened to that episode, I was actually thinking, who, who would like to, I don't want Jim to try, try and explain his amazingness, but would Michael or Jeremy want to have a go? Oh, look, I wouldn't do it justice, but I'll have a go. And this is, might be the only time I get a word in edgeways with you three guys <laughs> on the call with me. So, um, look, I first met Jim 2001, way back in the day. And, and Jim is a brilliant engineer. He won't mind me saying that because he knows he's pretty good. But um, brilliant engineer who was really ahead of his time. You know, looked at media filtration, you know, horizontal bed filtration you know, years and years ago and worked out the shortcomings and actually did something about it. So it was really a pioneer and a trailblazer, more, more or less, and that's probably, you know, why we think so much of him. If you think back 25, 30 years and you go, hey, you know what? This sandfield's not working right. I'm going to flip it on its head and redesign it and go from there. What a vision, you know? And so Jim basically developed technology and, and built a successful company. Um, and I know I've missed so much in that, but in a nutshell, that's the great man himself, I think. And you know what? I think the, the, the better thing to that is he's, he's a top bloke as well, really. One of the nicest people you'll ever meet. So Totally agree, Wixie, yeah. mate. My fondest memory that I've been told of Jim is how he met his wife, Camilla, I believe, peacekeeping in Yemen. Is that correct, Jim? Yeah, it was in Yemen. Wow. Peacekeeping in, in Yemen. Back in the days. So shout out to Camilla. Back then it was an interesting place. 
Hang, hang on. What were you doing peacekeeping in Yemen? Was this a part of the United Nations or? or? I was a contractor with, I was with the University of Arizona and contracted with USAID to grow citrus there and develop a citrus industry. So we went there, we built a farm, trained the Yemenis on citrus propagation and uh, citrus culture. And I was there for two and a half years and I met my wife there, Camilla. She was with Peace Corps. She was a Peace Corps nurse. Nice. Yeah, that was uh, ooh, 40 years ago. It'll be at, oh, remind me, you know, it's uh, <laughs> our 40th wedding anniversary is, is this coming April? <laughs> I better, I, hang on a second. I need to write that on my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll get you a chance, but I've commonly heard you being referred to as the godfather of stormwater. And actually, as a side note, well, we're 100 and something episodes into Ocean Protect, and we've never plugged one of our asset types, one of our stormwater treatment asset types. But it's worth noting that, correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, you are the inventor, creator of the storm filter device. And I'm not sure if you actually know this. In Australia, Ocean Protect have recently installed our 30,000th storm filter, and that's 20 years of putting these systems in the ground. And I actually did some rough calcs this morning. Give an engineer a number, he'll give you some more numbers. And I worked out that roughly the storm filters in Australia stop about a tonne of pollution going through our waterways on average every day. A tonne of pollution. So it's worthwhile recognising that the storm filter captures a whole bunch of you know sediment and dissolved pollutants and a whole bunch of very, very nasty pollutants that are, would otherwise be flowing into our waterways in Australia. So on behalf of the fish the marine species, uh, the birds, and everyone who enjoys our waterways in Australia, Jim. Thank you for your major involvement in stopping, again, a ton of pollution every day. That is nice to know, Brad. I I think in the States, there's probably close to 600,000 of them installed. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. I I saw a little thing with Michael was out visiting Manai, and I remember that very well, getting the first the first project there and how exciting it was to our first international installation. But yeah, it's been installed throughout the entire United States, Korea, Italy, New Zealand, and of course, Australia, and a few odds and ends here and there in, in Europe and Canada. It's a good feeling to know that something that uh, I've been involved with 30 years now is uh, still being successful and, and still have, helping clean up the water and make some happy fish. I'm, I'm proud of that. Very much. And if we could, could we go back? Michael touched on this, how it came about a little bit. Like, I guess sand filters were a, a common stormwater treatment asset type in, a, in the States. Is that right? And you thought you could do something a little bit differently and better? Yeah. Actually, I was got involved in stormwater when the regulations first started formulating. And back in the day, the only thing you could really use to treat stormwater was ponds, wetlands, swales, and sand filters. They were the only technologies that had sufficient data to support them when these different municipalities throughout the United States were developing their design uh, standards for engineers for development. And um, one of the issues was the amount of room that it took up. And we actually started the business using a leaf compost that we pelletize for the removal of pollutants. We were targeting mostly total suspended solids and metals and phosphorus, believe it or not, um, total phosphorus. We did a demonstration project in 1994, 1993, ended up getting a patent on the technology, but it was basically like a horizontal bed, kind of like a, what a sand filter is. And we realized pretty quick that you can get to performance, but you not don't get the longevity. So in our genius, we figured, well, make it vertical. So we put it in these canisters 
the whole idea was if you have a horizontal bed, the only place the sediments can go is right on top. That's where the sediments go. And once you get a fine layer of sediments on the filter of the surface, it's pretty much a done deal. So we went uh, vertical on it and figured, okay, the sediments can go down the bottom. The water's going to go through the media and it's all good. What we found out was pretty quickly was that if you have a horizontal bed and you put, let's say, 18 inches, I'm sorry, I'm going to be speaking imperial units. I, I can't convert when I'm, <laughs> so, but um, I had 18 inches of a uh, of, of driving head. But if you have a vertical surface, you have basically a triangular pressure distribution. So your average driving head was on the order of nine inches. So we found out even though a lot of the sediments went down the bottom, it's the finer sediments that really impact filters. Mm, mm. And, uh, so we had the finer sediments still moving, you know, to the filter surface with only nine inches of driving head. And it actually did not work as well as a horizontal bed filter, believe it or not. So we started doing some testing. We put an inverted pipe on this contraption that we had built in our garageatory. We noticed that every once in a while when we were looking at the flow rate, every once in a while the flow rate would increase over and above what it was at other times. And we finally figured out what would happen was the way that we had the system plumbed, it would set up a siphon. And so we're like, oh, how do we capitalize on that? You know, a lot of times people think you're, you get, oh, I'm going to invent this. But it was basically, invention was the, you know, observation and, and trial and error and, and things over a longer period of time. But we did finally figure out that we could induce a siphon. And what I mean by a siphon is you have a pressure on the outside. You've got a triangular pressure distribution. And if you set up a siphon on the inside, you've got, in a reverse pressure distribution. So it basically like a, a suction or a, a hanging column of water on the inside. So on the outside, if you look at the top of the filter, basically the atmospheric pressure, and let's say you go down 18 inches, you're at 18 inches of driving head. And on the inside of the filter, we're at zero, uh, basically at the bottom of the filter and minus 18 at the top of the filter. So the difference in the pressure head was a rectangular distribution. And so now on this vertical surface, we basically had 18 inches of uniform driving head across the filter, which is a good thing because now the sediments, a lot of the sediments went down to the bottom and we had uniform distribution. So we were able to outperform the uh, sand filter in terms of the, the way that we were loading it. Mm. And then we decided, hey, if we put a hood over this, we had literally had a round garbage can. We put a around garbage can over the thing. Wow. And <laughs> to extend the siphon, you know, because once the water went down below, it would suck air into the yeah. negative pressure on the inside and it would break that, that suction head. So we decided to put this cover over it, kind of like when you draw a, a cup out of water, you know, you, mm. you it and pull it out of the water. So we did that. And so what happened, it would maintain that siphon until the water hit the bottom of that hood, which we now call the hood it would break the siphon then. So we started playing around with that. And then we found that, you know, nothing's perfect, right? So what would happen, a big slug of air would come into the system when the, when it collapsed and that would disturb the media. That wasn't a good thing. So we said, well, let's control the, the release of that air that goes into the system. And we built these little holes in it. And we literally took, took a mixture of toothpaste and sediment and slathered <laughs> slathered it all over the, the surface of the cartridge. 
And we tried, well, how many holes? How big are the holes? What's the shape of the holes? And eventually, we, we ended up putting eight small holes around the, the base of the cartridge, uh, the hood. So when the water surface on the outside reached that and the siphon would break, it would cause these bubbles to, to rush up the side. And we had a clear hood at that point in time, and we watched the turbulence, and it basically would scrub off the toothpaste in the sediment. And so we came up with what is now those little holes in the system to, first of all, control the collapse of that siphon so we don't disturb the media, but it also evenly distributes that collapse. And the energy from that collapse literally scrubs a lot of the sediment off the surface of the filter allows them to settle down to the bottom. So it really helped maintain the longevity of the system over a period of time. And, and if people wonder what these things look like, you can jump on the website or just Google storm filter. But I guess from a, a layman's perspective, they're underground assets. They're installed in chambers underground. And they, like you said, they're like little containers almost, cart, what we call them, cartridges. They've got yeah. a little plastic hood over the top. They sit at the bottom of these chambers and basically dirty stormwater drains through the, the sides of the filter cartridges and a whole bunch of pollution is removed. There's probably so much associated with technology and so much trial and error and development and innovation, et cetera. But I've heard Michael say before that I'm not sure if actually there's been much change to the technology since it was actually introduced, But and Michael can talk to that. But I remember Michael said a few times, like, Jim's thought of everything, basically, when it comes to this technology, whether it's the performance, the the self-cleaning, the ability to just remove them and maintain them and replace the filter media, et cetera. And time and time again, we see how they work, obviously, and the, the data shows that they work. And we've literally just done some testing as well of ourselves just to work out how long they might last. And long story short, they last a very, very long time to protect our waterways. So really interesting. You know, I, I do need to say that the development of the product now is over a, quite a long period of time and a lot of very talented mm. people were involved and different array of specialization in terms of mechanical engineers, civil engineers coming up with different designs, people with degrees in chemistry and hydrology and all sorts of different disciplines. It's a multidisciplinary development. And the other thing that kind of working in parallel with the development of the product was uh, a lot of work on media. We originally started with the compost media, which we figure out how to pelletize. We actually had a patent on pelletizing uh, leaf compost in order to come up with a consistent uniform product. But we recognized for certain applications that was not the best media. So we started looking at zeolites and perlites and started looking at first at TSS removal, but then uh, phosphorus uh, removal. And over a long period of time, we finally found a, a media that is actually manufactured in Australia now that uses a centered perlite product with activated alumina that's very effective at removing dissolved phosphorus from stormwater. So yeah, it's been over a long period of time. And we're still actually doing some research now on looking at, at nitrates, and we've seen some uh, success on that so far, and PFAS as well. I think uh, Mike talked about that a little bit. Yeah. Sorry, Jim, I'm keen to talk about some of these sort of dissolved pollutants and sort of because like, you know, on this podcast and in i guess regular media there's a there's a strong focus on plastic pollution and rightfully so it's a it's a key contaminant going into our oceans and waterways and certainly stormwater is uh, the key transport mechanism as to how that plastic and litter goes into our waterways but i think a lot of people just don't readily understand the less visible uh pollutants and that's something we sort of touched on very briefly in our last chat and I'm guessing I'm keen to talk about that in a bit more. And you mentioned PFAS. So there's there's obviously there's in addition to litter, there's sediment. There's you touched on nitrogen and phosphorus. Let's ask the hard questions, Jim. A lot of talk about plastic in the ocean. 
you've seen plastic go down in waterways for, you know, as you say, 30 years. Do you think plastic is the, the number one, you know, thing that we should be worried about when it comes to stormwater runoff? I think there are a lot of things to worry about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it, it starts with the plastics and runs us down all the way down. Some research out of the state of Washington where roadway runoff has been identified as very toxic to different types of salmon, a coho salmon specifically. People call the Pacific Northwest kind of a salmon economy. I mean, it's a big deal. They, for the longest time, thought it was copper that was impacting the fish because copper is omnipresent in stormwater runoff from brake pads and, and you know, wear from different chemicals and compounds and from metals and things like that. They finally did some research that identified, like, I think it was like over 250 types of organic compounds that you find in stormwater runoff from roadways. A rather talented data scientist slash data cruncher identified a compound that's used in tire rubbers called 6-PPD quinone. And tire manufacturers add this chemical into the tires because tires, when they're exposed to ozone, will turn brown on the sides. I don't know if you ever look the side of a tire sometimes and it's got a brownish tinge to it. Well, that's an impact from ozone. And so they add a 6-PPD to the tires to prevent that from happening. And when it oxidizes or reacts with the ozone, it turns into 6-PPD quinone. And they found out it's just highly toxic to these fish and, and literally will just take them out, kill them. So, yeah, I think, you know, it starts at the macro level. I mean, even heavy sediments, you know, they can choke channels. They change channel geometry that causes different kinds of reactions in, in streams, bank erosion, all the way to the plastics. I was reading some articles not too long ago that these plastics, the microplastics that get into the ocean and the macroplastics, but the the small bits of, of plastic that eventually break down to a certain size and get into the ocean transport different types of organisms on them. And so now these literally billions of pieces of plastic floating all over the oceans are spreading all sorts of different microbiological things that normally would not have um, migrated from you know, one landform to the next or one you know, water body to the next. So it's not just the fact that the plastics are there that getting ingested by the fish and the whales and the birds and everything else. And I know you guys have focused on that a lot. It's also these little hitchhikers that are getting onto the plastics and transporting around. So there's a lot of concern that you get this spread of biological activity that uh, normally doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, I've obviously heard of obviously plastics can act like little sponges and absorb a whole bunch of you know, heavy metals and other chemicals and contaminants and transport them. But I've never heard of microplastics being a transport mechanism for biology. Yeah. Kind of bizarre. <laughs> I know. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a concern, like the biology transfer well, it's, around? It's, it just kind of showed up in the literature. I don't know. You know, a lot of times you see this and then you hypothesize how this is going on. It's very clear that these things can be transported, but I don't think they really said this is the impact. This is classic scientific, we need more research kind of thing. That's the thing on the show. There is just a lack of research around all different types of the way plastic gets put into our creeks, rivers, and oceans. I mean, a lot of the guests that we have on here, Brad, and, and, and you'll agree, you, you'll ask them a question. Oh, so what, what's that? Oh, we, we haven't actually researched that, uh, or mm -hmm. we haven't actually got the funding to do that. So, you know, there's a lot more 
questions and answers on the show. And I guess, you know, you've just put another one in there and, and you know, we'll, we'll talk to a biologist and go, well, you know, how is this happening? Just going back to the US, Jim, because, I mean, we, we obviously the podcast is, is based in Australia and we tend to talk to Australian sort of guests. We love our international ones. But have you seen a change in people's or, or public policy around plastic, especially where you live? For people that don't know or don't know, Jim, you live in a couple of places, Portland, Oregon and Tucson, Arizona. So Mike and I have both been to both locations. Over the last five years since plastic has exploded into social media, into the ocean, have you seen a good shift in your areas? Oh, absolutely. Sandwiched in between Arizona and Oregon is the great state of California. And they have passed what's called the TMDL total maximum daily load requirement. And the TMDLs have been used throughout the United States. And, and this is uh, stormwater regulations with big teeth, EPA can file suit. Individuals can file suit if people are not meeting their TMDLs. So, for example, in the Chesapeake Bay, they have a phosphorus TMDL. Team TMDL, what does that mean? Total maximum daily load. Yeah, okay. On a total basis, you're only allowed to add so much of this pollutant. So, state of California put a TMDL on trash and debris, which is defined to be five millimeters or greater. You might ask, well, is that like a sphere? Is that like a stick? I mean, if you have a a stick that's only two millimeters, but is, you know, mm. might be 10 millimeters one way. And, you know, a little bit of kind of exactly what you mean by that. But the TMDL that they have passed is zero. It's not, you're allowed to add two cigarette butts per acre per year or whatever. It's zero. Zero for the whole year. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, I mean, wow. technically, you know, through the TMDL and the regulatory process, if you live in California and you're a municipality or, you know, a, a private enterprise, you are no longer allowed to discharge anything greater than five millimeters into receiving water, right? So there's a lot of activity right now, quite a few studies done with different organizations in California, and they set up some testing criteria. Obviously. A lot of different devices are available, all of ranging from what we call catch basin inserts, you call them gully pit inserts, I guess, to in-pipe systems and then to systems that are outfall or point of discharge. So the first thing the state tried to do was say, okay, well, how do we know that this device is doing this? So they set up some tests, they did some research, and they set up kind of a loose criteria. And I've been working uh, with a number of people with the uh, ASTM E64. ASTM's American Society of Testing and Materials uh, is now called ASTM International because 
they uh, set international standards as well. Within the E64, there's a new laboratory test standard, if you will, for demonstrating that your device can meet this criteria, the five millimeter criteria. So there are all sorts of different test methods. There's one where you, you have kind of artificial leaves. There's kind of this mixture, you, you will, of trash and debris made of plastics, cigarette butts, some leaves, uh, if you're also looking at leaves, a few plastic materials, and you kind of do this load test on your system. You also do a test where you're using uh, plastic beads that are on the order of five millimeters. These beads are either neutrally buoyant, floating, or sinking. So you have kind of this uh, variable uh, density in the beads, and you have to demonstrate that your device can remove all beads that are great, five millimeters or greater. And then there's also a hydraulic testing component to it. And this standard is actually in committee right now, and is pretty close to being set as an ASTM standard for ASTM E64, which is also a new committee, main committee in ASTM called uh, Stormwater Control Measures. Mm-hmm. So we're not only looking at trash debris, we're also looking at hydrodynamic separators and eventually filters. Me being the only non-engineer on this phone call, how do you possibly capture 100% of the pollutants? How do you manage the bypass? For every stormwater device that goes in the ground, you've either got an internal bypass within that asset or there's a bypass upstream. So, Jim, how do they combat that? Because that means you've got to capture everything, absolutely everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, how? how do they do it? <laughs> well, that's a good question, JB. I'm not sure everybody's 100% figured that out. You know, a lot of times the regulatory process looks at, okay, you have to treat up to your design storm. Typical design storm around here is like a 10-year flow. Usually a water quality design storm is significantly less than that, but for trash and debris, one of the big advantages and, and the easy things about trash and debris is you can get a lot of water through a screen as long as it doesn't clog with, you know, leaves and garbage and a bunch of other stuff, you can get a lot of water through it. So have the ability to treat a 10-year storm is doable, but also these units have to be able to demonstrate that they can bypass a big storm if it gets clogged up, simply because public safety is also a big deal. You don't want to be flooding the streets and things like that. It's not an easy thing to do, but we're definitely making progress on it. So look, we have stormwater standards. You guys have stormwater standards. You've got your zero TMDL for trash. But common problem I see all the time is that there's regulation, then there's enforcement, and there's a real sometimes disconnect between the two. We've got great standards too, and if we followed our standards to the letter, you know, we would really go a long way in mitigating the problem. So who's actually chasing up the states? Does your legal framework support you know, enforcement of ensuring that these states get to their zero TMDL target? Like, how does it work? Like, that's the real for me. It's great to have regulation, but how is it enforced and how are you seeing real sort of action on the ground? That, again, is an interesting conundrum when, when the regulations first started back in the late 70s, early 80s, when people actually started addressing water quality. People were designing all sorts of, you know, again, ponds and swales and sand filters and storm filters and hydrodynamic separators, a lot of different devices. One thing that was a bit of a conundrum is you put these in the ground and then they, uh, yeah, it's okay, off to the next one. And they weren't being really maintained. When we first did the storm filter, I remember giving presentations and somebody would say, yeah, but filters clog, don't they? I said, well, yeah, eventually they do. 
and you got to maintain them. Oh, you do? You got to maintain them? And there was this kind of notion that ponds and swales and sand filters really didn't need maintenance, or if it did, it was uh, 20 years from now. That's changed a lot, let me tell you. And part of the National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System, which is the kind of general overall permitting regulatory environment in the United States, one of the six foundations of that is operations maintenance of uh, your facilities. And I would say it was probably 10 years, maybe 15 years before people really started to recognize, yeah, if you don't maintain these things, they're going to not work very well or stop working altogether. So probably about five years ago, I mean, it's still kind of getting started, but agencies started looking at maintenance and operations and, and making requirements for that. A lot of agencies are setting up stormwater utilities. So the municipal systems are undergoing uh, operation maintenance work. And then the private facilities are starting to do inspections and uh, maintenance on these things. And literally uh, a person, an inspector can come out. And if you have not done the maintenance on your filter or your pond or whatever, they can literally shut you down, shut down your business. And that's happening more and more. So if the state is not following the zero TMDL, is there any community groups? Is there any support with your legal system? Like, is there any challenges to say, look, hey, you know what? The state's here is not quite performing as they should. Is there any mechanism there that can sort of trigger that these systems will actually be, you know, they'll reach their zero TMDL? That's the beauty and the beast of the United States, right? Uh, <laughs> things can get a little litigious here. So one of the, the beauties of the Clean Water Act is it allows third-party actions to enforce the Clean Water Act. So you can have river keepers, you have orange, you've got coast keepers, you've got, you know, concerned citizens for the fish, you've got the National Resources Defense Council, and they can get litigious. So if you're not, if a municipality or a state is not meeting these regulations, they can come in and sue the state. So not just the federal government can come after them, some of these private organizations come after them. They get very good at what they do. And what they do is fines are imposed and then a portion of those fines gets paid to the third-party lawsuit. And then that helps fund more lawsuits. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, so it's a good thing and not such a good thing. But you get some of these people coming after you. Things happen pretty quick. And we should point out, and this is actually kind of how this zero TMDL started, was it was instigated by local community groups and environmental groups suing the government. And that was essentially the driver for this target. And look, if I can summarize very quickly, I, from what I understand, I think that the target was established in 2009, I think. It was in the courts. I think the state government might have sort of kicked back and gone, no, this is a silly target. We can't do it. And long story short, they lost. And so I essentially had to start working towards this target. And I think it was a zero trash to waterways target by 2030 in the state of California. And they've obviously been progressively doing various initiatives, particularly around stormwater infrastructure. You know, you mentioned the gully pit inserts and the gross pollutant traps, et cetera, to essentially stop that trash. But as Jeremy sort of alluded to, it's a huge task. You know, it's a lot of infrastructure, a lot of investment required. And to Michael's point, 
And there's no point just putting that infrastructure in. It needs to be appropriately maintained. And so it's a huge task. And obviously that needs investment, resources. And I remember you talking about how this was kind of being managed by, I guess, from what I understand, a stormwater utility in the California, at least. Is that correct? So it needs to be appropriately resourced with a lot of investment to essentially achieve these targets. So essentially the, the government doesn't get sued. Is that, is that a fair summary? Yeah, it's usually the states don't form the utilities. Usually utilities are done by local municipalities or committees. Like in, in Oregon, I pay every month, I, I pay a certain amount of my sanitary sewer bill is also for stormwater and maintaining stormwater infrastructure. Now, and that's pretty common across the United States. And and it's not the easiest thing to do. People call it a rain tax. You know, now you guys are taxing the rain and yeah, I, I understand that perspective. It's like, God, when are you guys going to stop doing it? But at the same time, working in stormwater all these years, you just see how dirty it is. You see the impacts it has on, on waters that people enjoy recreating in. The big problem right now in the United States is uh, eutrophication and toxic algae blooms. And, and Brad, you and I have emailed back and forth about that. And, mm. you know, it, it's tough. You know, the state of Florida and Minnesota and, and other places water bodies are are just becoming pollution sinks for these nutrients and and it's not easy to fix it you know because it's a diverse pollutants coming in from a lot of different sources or so it's it's a tough deal and it's worth noting that whilst there's this tmdl for for california by 2030 it is it is, it is in a few other locations in in america as well and i'm not sure if you know jim this was actually the inspiration behind sorry you were the inspiration and this conversation behind the subsequent zero littered to ocean target that ocean protect and still new south wales have been advocating for for those who aren't familiar we've talked about it on the show before there's a zero littered ocean website which talks about the actions and i remember i, I gave a talk on friday night down the gold coast for sea shepherd australia and I sort of pitched this zero littered ocean and they're like, oh, look, and these are people who give up their weekends cleaning up beaches and, and waterways and parks. And they're like, oh, look, the great targets, but never going to happen. And then you say, well, to be honest, they're doing it in California. If they can do it in California, surely we can do it in Australia. And since we've started this campaign, and we should point out we're sort of basically lobbying federal and state and government to get behind this campaign and provide some resources to assist it. But even in the absence of that funding and resources, about half a dozen local governments in Australia have already committed to achieving zero litter to ocean or zero litter to river by 2030. So there's a lot of movement in this space. And this has all come out from this podcast chat that we had with you, what episode two, two or three years ago. So talk about a man of influence, I tell you. <laughs> well, it's the old saying, even the longest journey starts with the first step. And you think about, you know, in the 60s where cars were just belching out smoke and leaking oil all over the place. And I remember when they started passing air quality, you know, and, and putting in catalytic converters. What is that? And it's amazing the, the difference that it's made on air quality. If, if you think in back in the late 60s, and early 70s, the population of the United States was, you know, maybe 100 million people or something. You know, if you had those same regulations or lack of regulations in place now, we'd all be, you know, wearing gas masks all day long. Yeah. So in, in stormwater, it's the same thing. When they first passed the National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System, and we would go to engineers and say, you got to install this facility here. You got to put it in a, you know, for water quality. It's like, what are you talking about? I can't do that. There's no budget for that. There's no room yeah. for that. But eventually, you know, now engineers, they, they have training and, okay, where's the water quality facility going to go or how's it going to work? How's that going to work? And it's been, since I've been in the business, it's been 30 years and it's made a lot of progress, but it still has a long way to go. Yeah. So. And it's worth noting that 
whilst this TMDL is currently about litter and trash in, in the States, there's a progressive target as well. So there's a zero TMDL for litter currently, say, by 2030, say, in California. But there's other targets for, I guess, less visible pollutants as well in the future that need to be achieved as well, like the dissolved pollutants that we referred to before, yeah. for example. Yeah. In California, it's, you know, it's been a while since I've looked, but it was kind of what they referred to as a ratcheting down system. So they, they started with the easy stuff and over mm. time you go to the hard stuff. I, I always thought, well, maybe it's better to start with the hard stuff because I can guarantee you if I'm getting PAHs out of the water and I'm getting metals out of the water, then I, I'm getting the TSS. I'm getting the trash and debris. Pretty much the only way you can do it. They're coming down, so they start with the gross pollutants and then they're looking at TSS. But that ratchets all the way down into, you know, some of your more exotic organic uh, compounds over a long period of time. Mm. And and to be, you know, really holistic about it, it's not only water quality facilities and treating this water, but it's also, you know, looking upstream and saying, mm. what are the materials that are generating all this and what are the habit people? So public education, changing materials. California's work really did diligently with manufacturers of uh, brake parts in order to reduce or eliminate uh, copper rivets mm. in the brake pads, which is identified as a major contributor of copper and stormwater runoff. And in fact, I just saw the other day, there's a seminar given, given on the new materials that are doing that. And I'm going to sign up for plastic reduction. You go into some airports now and a lot of different areas, they're no longer allowed to sell bottled water. They put in all sorts of water stations to make sure you bring your own bottle, you know, a reusable bottle, because obviously you can't bring bottles through security. So you got to mm-hmm. throw it there in the airport. So a lot of efforts like that, stuff that biodegrades a lot easier, different packaging reduction, recycling efforts, you know, all these things are kind of happening in order to reduce the load in the first place. It still is a big problem. What, what do you think about all the money and the media attention around cleaning up the problem, Jim. I mean, we have got, you know, great people, boy and slants out there trying to clean up the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. We've got a guy, Pete Kalinsky, with the, the sea bin technology that skims off the, the, the pollution at the top. You see Coca-Cola are partnering with them and all these big companies are sort of partnering with the real visible, oh, I'm out there doing the right thing, cleaning up the, the problem. But a lot of the money is going there and then not a lot of focus is, is going on stormwater runoff because, yeah, we're trying to reduce what we put into the, the system and that's going to take time, you know, behavioural change. You know, you can't just, you know, stop people buying plastic products. That's going to take time. A lot of emphasis has gone on on that, the front end, and a lot of emphasis is on the cleanup. But there seems to be this wishy-wash of, oh, well, what happens in between that? I just want to get your thoughts on that. I think a lot, of, a lot of different approaches. I, I think, you know, first of all, that, you know, the trash efforts are people can see that, you know, that's that's visual. I, mean, I can show you pictures of a coastline just littered with plastics or a bunch of plastic floating around in a pond and things like that. Yeah, I've seen a lot of different organizations. I'm all for it. I think it's a lot of different solutions. I think, um, you know, some of them may be more of a marketing effort, but at the same time, you know, that raises awareness with people that more of the stormwater treatment side, there's a different cost associated with that. If you're a Kmart, you know, it's a, or a a Walmart or a Home Depot or 
any of these large big, big box stores. You know, Bunnings, mate. You know, like, Bunnings, you know, like, Bunnings yeah. in Boston. Yeah, go down there. Yeah, mate. Get your sausage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, fast food restaurants, it's, it's not a sexy thing for them. It's a cost to them. You know, one thing that was really interesting was we were working at a, let's say, a fast food hamburger place. And we found that there was a lot of animal fats and greases and, and, and stuff in there. And the guy was like, oh, my God, the maintenance on this thing is going to be incredible. And I can't afford to do that. And we're talking to him. Eventually figured out, first of all, you have to do things like clean out your grease traps so they don't overflow onto the, the sidewalk and the pavement. But we also found out that if he budgets for it, and he would literally get billed for it every month, but the maintenance only happened once a year, he was like, he was happy. He says, as long as I can budget for it, and I understand what's going on, that's great. But it, he didn't want a surprise coming in October that somebody sent him a, a bill for $5,000 or whatever for a maintenance. He'd rather pay a $500 a month. And then it's just part of his budgeting process and he does it. So I think a lot of that at, at the, let's say the, the user level is more palatable now than it, than it used to be. We found previously we go to an owner and, and say, well, you know, you need to maintain this. Is they maintain what? He didn't know he had it on his property. He's like, what are you talking mm-hmm. about? Well, over there, under the ground, there's these filters or there's a dynamic separator, whatever it was. And they're like, oh, I had no idea that was going on there. Now, as part of the what they call the CCNRs, Covenants, Code, and Restrictions, a lot of time this is written into the CCNRs. It's on the plat, on the property plat. And then there's a requirement by different agencies that either the owner or the people that are leasing the property understand that this is on the property and it needs to be maintained. It's getting a lot better. It's a lot more palatable now for operations and maintenance than it was a few years ago. I used to be the the chair of the um, Urban Water Resources Research Council with the Environmental Water Resources Institute, which is a division of American Society of Civil Engineers. We decided to put on a operations and maintenance conference every year or one a one-time conference and now it's every other year that we have a low impact development conference and then the operation and maintenance uh, conference. And it's been one of the most popular conferences that EWRI has put on. So a lot of these things, operations, maintenance, uh, asset management is becoming a huge deal. So now the old adage of out of, out of sight, out of mind is kind of taking second fiddle to asset management. And a lot of the different companies that do software are incorporating uh, stormwater facilities, stormwater control measure attributes, if you will, into their uh, geographic information systems and asset management systems. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. Episodes are released weekly and the next episode will feature part two of this chat. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.